We're moving away from a world dependent on fossil fuels. But what does that mean for the geopolitics? And which potential problems do we face in a world that's dominated by renewable energy sources? My guest today is Helen Thompson. You can't understand pretty much anything in modern international politics without understanding fossil fuel energy, and particularly the way in which the beginning of the age of oil really transformed the geopolitical balance of power in the world. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I'm Minister for Development Cooperation and Global Climate Policy in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers, authors and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. De Paris pour le est so this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. My guest today is Helen Thompson. She's a professor of political economy at Cambridge University and has written extensively on the geopolitics of energy. Thompson's current research concentrates on the political economy of energy and democratic, economic and geopolitical disruptions of the 21st century. Her most recent book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, was published the 24th of February 2022 the same day that Russia invaded Ukraine. Thompson's book has received glowing reviews and was shortlisted by the Financial Times for the best business book of the year 2022. Before I start the conversation with Helen Thompson, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I have a new job title. I used to be Minister for Climate, Energy and Public Utilities in Denmark, but we've had an election and I've got a new job. Today, my portfolio is Minister for Global Development Cooperation and Global Climate Policy. With regards to this podcast, that will not make a difference since the core of my political work is still trying to find solutions to the climate crisis. And with that, let's turn to my conversation with Helen Thompson. Hello, Helen. Hello. Great to meet you. And you too. We usually talk about uh, climate change in this podcast, and, and we probably will indirectly today also, but the main focus of this conversation will be on how energy and energy policy affects world order. You've written an excellent book, and I want to talk to you about your, your points, but let's start by talking a little bit about our favorite, one of my favorite authors, and I think you admire him as well because you pay homage to him in one of the very first pages in the book, uh, Charles Dickens. You quote uh, Hard Times, one of his books, and A Tale of Two Cities. Why, why do you do that? It's partly simply that I'm um, a Dickens obsessive. Uh, he's by far my, my favorite um, novelist, and I was interested in the hard times angle, precisely because actually reading hard times at school put me off Dickens other than great expectations for about a decade and a half. So it's kind of a slight sort of joke against myself <laughs> that I could have been so 
blind about something. But it's also because when I went back to read Hard Times, which um, was the last Dickens that I turned to because I remembered my dislike of it, was I realised that it was really a pretty profound meditation in a way uh, on the industrial civilization, on the origins of industrial civilization. And Dickens was somebody who I think really understood the more that you look at it, the ecological stakes of the industrial revolution in what he was um, about. He basically talks, you know, like about the way in which the gases from coal are locking us in um, as, if, as if we're trapped inside coal and I think then Dickens is kind of interested in the idea really even then of like whether actually there's almost something apocalyptic about fossil fuel energy and coal in particular whether in the end it's going to destroy the civilization the material civilization that it is also creating and I think you know it's very obvious why those are still that's still a pretty pertinent question Mm. for us Um, living in the 21st century um, with fossil fuel energy being used at a whole other scale than it was in the middle of the 19th century and us understanding very clearly um, what the ecological and consequences of that being, not least obviously for the climate. Yes, well, that makes perfect sense. Now, of course, when Dickens wrote his novels, the concept of climate change, if it was even known to anybody, it would be very few and it definitely wasn't what he was referring to. But nonetheless, it does uh, does still make sense to make the comparison. And I, I also think that the critique that he in his books deliver on industrial civilization is probably also relevant to today, even though it, of course, had a different starting point. When he sat there in Bloomsbury in in London and and wrote his uh, his his books, sometimes furious, sometimes uh, sometimes happy, as I understand it. Can you maybe outline for for the listeners the the main argument of your book? What I wanted to do in writing the book was to provide an analysis or an explanation of why I thought the 2010s as a decade had been as turbulent Mm. politically as they had been. And I included in that the the domestic politics of various Western countries, including obviously uh, my own Britain, and the international politics of the decade, particularly the second half of the 2010s, so the years of the Trump presidency. I started, I think, from two issues that I had with the ways in which the turbulence of the 2010s politically was usually cast. The first was that I didn't think there was anywhere near a long enough history to it. So some of the the problems of democracy, or were seen as problems of democracy, I thought looked somewhat different when you gave democracy a long history. Mm. And I was particularly interested there in the historical relationship between democracy and nationhood. And then I started from the premise that actually you can't understand pretty much anything in modern international politics, and then this has profound implications for the domestic politics of countries, without understanding fossil fuel energy, and particularly the way in which the beginning of the age of oil really transformed the geopolitical balance of power in the world, away from the the dominant European um, powers, that it is in the context of the rise of oil as an energy source at the 20th century geopolitically, I think, played out in the way in which it did. And if you'd said at the beginning of the 20th century, 
let's be oil determinist about it. Look at the two states that were the two biggest oil producers in the world, the United States and Russia. They indeed did go on to dominate the 20th century. Obviously, the United States more so and Russia in a complicated form because it was really the Soviet Union that came to be a world um, power rather than czarist um, Russia. But I think that you can't understand the geopolitics of the 20th century without understanding those structural dynamics um, that oil created, not just for those two powers, but for what did the European countries who had empires and who were used to exercising power, obviously notably Britain, what did they do in the face of a world in which the most important energy source was one that they didn't have? Mm. So first of all, I, I of course, uh, totally uh, agree with you on on that main argument, uh, the main premises that the world that we live in today is very much shaped by the access to fossils, especially oil. Then that, of course, raises some very important questions about what will now happen when we as a global community, have decided to move away from fossil fuels, including oil, and into renewables. Your book was actually published the 24th of February, the same day that Russia invaded Ukraine. I mean, that was an ironic coincidence, uh, since, of course, uh, energy and the access to energy, for fossil energy, also plays a very important role and is um, a big part of the conflict in in Ukraine. Talk to us a little bit about that. That was actually um, quite hard for me, the the coincidence of my book coming out on the day of Russia's um, invasion. Obviously, in the in the weeks leading up to the twenty fourth of February, it was you know reasonably evident that something was going to happen, that Russia was going to declare some kind of war on Ukraine. And I thought that there was a certain inevitability in a way to that. And I had uh, some analysis um, in disorder as to why that might be. And I'd taken a deliberate decision, which wasn't one I'd initially planned, to focus or to structure, I should say, to structure the third geopolitical chapter of disorder. So the one that's about the post-Cold War world around when it came to Europe, two fault lines that I thought went back to the beginning of the post-Cold War era. The first was Ukraine and the second was Turkey. And I didn't think it was possible to understand what had happened in the 2010s without understanding the relationship between the initial Ukraine story after its independence and dissolution of the Soviet Union and the competition between Russia and the United States over energy matters um, during the 2010s. But having said all that, I was nonetheless shocked by the kind of war that Putin launched on the the 24th of February. Hmm. And in that sense, I actually didn't think that I had an explanation of what had happened because this kind of war, one that was directed in the first instance, and obviously he seems to have retreated from that, but was directed in the first instance at regime change, at simply trying to take control of the whole of Ukraine. That seemed to me a whole other level of disruption, if we're going to carry on with the language that I've used in the book, than the story that I'd been telling. So on the one hand, I thought there's something I've got to say that's going to help understand this situation. On the other hand, I thought, well, kind of the wars left my book behind. It was a kind of strange feeling. And then at the same time, it was just pretty 
emotionally difficult to promote a book when the tragedy of what was happening to Ukrainians was happening. Mm. I'm now in the process of writing an epilogue for the paperback edition in which I'm going to try to say something about the year's events of 2022 focused around the war, what that might say about where I think the world, the, the fault lines that I was describing um, in, in the original edition of the book uh, are now going. But I guess you could also use this conflict. It's difficult since we're in the middle of it. And since, as you say, uh, right now, of course, politically, our main focus is to help the Ukrainian people as much as we can. Uh, but still, if we are to try and look at it from an analytical perspective, obviously, energy being weaponized is a big part of this conflict. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, and um, we can see the geopolitics of that pretty clearly, actually, even before the 24th of February. Um, so actually, Schultz moved Germany away from Nord Stream, essentially repudiated Nord Stream, actually a couple of days before the war began. Then we've seen the fact that the Nord Stream pipelines have been blown up, and we can see that we've we can see that Russia has certainly since the autumn really been quite systematically targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure in a way which I think you can say that has made things more difficult for Ukraine than they looked in the early autumn. And then there's the fact that the war has ripped up Europe's energy relationship with Russia. I don't mean by that that European countries have been able to separate themselves entirely from Russian energy. I don't think that that's the case. And I actually think that it's less the case than it looks on the on the surface, but that it is no longer possible in European countries and in the European Union to legitimate the kind of energy relationship with Russia that European countries had before the war began. And then that has profound consequences for Russia too, because whilst Russia was already a Eurasian energy supplier, i.e. looked both ways to Europe, Asia, thus far European markets had been more important, uh, even though Asian markets were growing. Now Russia really has to focus on Asia. And that is not, I don't think, as difficult perhaps as some people think it is for um, Russia. And that will have some quite important cons consequences in terms of the geopolitics of the transit of energy, not least, I think, heightening geopolitical competition in the Arctic. So there's all kinds of energy consequences that have flown, or all kinds of consequences for the geopolitics of energy that have flown from the war that have the capacity to be then quite generally geopolitically transformative, I think. Yes, and I guess you could add to that that um, when we look at which possibilities the countries of Europe had to sanction Russia, obviously the most potent ones were the ones related to energy. We were in a big dilemma because on one hand, Putin is making money selling energy to, to Europe. On the other hand, if we closed that window and if we put sanctions on all energy and stopped, for instance, all import of, of gas from Russia from one day to, to the next, then that would have severe consequences for Europe uh, and we might actually be in, in, in an extremely serious situation with a recession and, and all the negative effects that that would entail. And of course, that shows us many things. It, it shows us that fossil energy is, is still a, a very uh, real uh, factor in 
geopolitics and in, in the power struggle between countries. It shows us both that from a European side, we can use it as uh, a means of putting pressure on another country, in this case, uh, Russia, but it also shows that we are vulnerable ourselves. Now, in Europe, one of the ways that we are trying to deal with this is using this crisis also as uh, an occasion to do some of the more transformational things that we need to do with our energy systems faster than we would have. And this means, for instance, that the European Union has been has been forced to uh, put forward uh, proposals for new legislation, new regulation, which makes us less dependent on fossil fuels. This this has, I think, been a success. We could have done even more probably, but, but we have managed to reduce our use of uh, natural gas uh, in general in, in, in Europe. Uh, my own country, I think around 30% we've, we've reduced now. And that, of course, then means that we have taken some steps that we would have liked to take in any circumstance, but that we're now taking faster. On the other hand, we've also been forced to do things that actually are counterproductive in that sense, because we are prolonging coal-based power plants' uh, lifespans. Some countries are are prolonging the the lifespan of their nuclear power plants because they wanted to phase that out. Now that they 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 probably won't do that in in the short term at least. And in that sense, this crisis has has led to a development going in 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 opposite directions. Some places we do something normally not do because we're in the middle of a green transformation of of Europe. But on other issues, we're actually moving much faster than we would have. What are your thoughts on on that development? Yeah, as you say, I, I think that this is quite complicated because, as you've already described, there are developments that pull in different directions. If we start with the gas question, in one sense, the the ability to reduce gas consumption in European countries has been quite impressive. Certainly, if you just look at the total figures and then look at the fact that actually we've not yet, and I stress, I think yet, moved into like recessionary conditions, despite fall in industrial gas consumption in particular, where actually, in some countries anyway, the brunt of it has occurred. On the one hand, I think that that's quite good news, because it would suggest that actually there was more scope for efficiency industrially, where gas consumption was concerned, than perhaps many of us thought. On the other hand, I I don't actually think you can have that kind of reduction in industrial gas consumption without the consequences showing up somewhere at some point. And I I think if you look at the issue of um, nitrogen fertilisers in particular, um, where you had in the autumn quite a number of European firms basically shutting down the production of um, essentially of synthetic nitrogen, um, that we should expect that fertiliser problem to show up in food prices like later this year perhaps so I, I think it's a little bit too early to tell how unscathed european economies have got out of reducing industrial um, gas mm-hmm. consumption i mean it's quite encouraging as i say that actually some efficiency saving has clearly been made i would suggest but let's see where we are on this in six months, maybe the last part of this year. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, in one sense, let's take a concrete example from my own country. When we, we've we decided as a government to subsidize people with gas burners 
that they, it's possible for them to now have a, an electric heat pump instead. Is that a good thing? Yeah, well, obviously it is. Uh, this is a development that we would hope would have happened anyway, and it will in time lead to cheaper bills for the people uh, that are that are actually doing this. It'll lead to less uh, uh, CO2 emissions. Um, and it's it's just the, a general thing that's moving in the right direction. We've done this on a pretty massive scale, and so have, has other countries in, in Europe. On the other hand, no, let me just mention one more positive example. A lot of companies have now gone through their production processes uh, and analyzed them and found that there were actually more rational ways of, of doing things, so they uh, have become much more energy efficient because of this. This is also, I think, uh, almost... Uh, a 100% positive development. But as you say, we've also had a decrease in uh, production in some parts of our industry. And one of them is uh, production of fertilizers. What does this mean? Well, on the, for the emissions, it's good. You know, we have less emissions from that sector. It's one of the sectors that pollute the most. Great, you might be tempted to think. But if we look at the actual effects, this will, this will lead to probably... Uh, very serious uh, food security uh, issues in, in many parts of the world. I mean, especially some of the countries where they are already now facing problems with uh, droughts uh, and, and other things connected to climate change. So it, the droughts are worse and more frequent than we've seen before. And here again, a paradox. We are reducing emissions from one of the sectors that cause climate change, but at the same time, the emissions are reduced because the production has gone down, and because the production is going down, the communities affected in, for instance, Africa become less resilient towards climate change. Yeah, that's, so that's one very concrete e example of, of what will happen in the transformation from a fossil-driven economy into a, a greener economy, which leads us then to, of course, I think, probably the most interesting question in your book, what happens when we move away from a world defined by the access to and the trade of fossil fuels into a new world where it's uh, that's driven by renewable energy? Can you describe to us what does this what does this mean for the world order? Well, I think the first thing that we have to understand is what actually is at stake here. We used to the language of the energy transition. I sometimes use this language myself because it's kind of the way in which uh, these issues are most frequently talked about. But really what we're talking about is an energy revolution. You know, we're trying to collectively, you know, I mean, we the world in this sense, are trying to um, transform the entire energy basis of modern material civilization. And that's an extraordinary thing to try to do. It's an even more extraordinary thing to try to do in the timescales that we're talking about. So net zero 2050 or even sometimes 2045. And so I think the first thing that in a way that I wanted to bring out by the story that I was telling about um, energy in the economic and political world is just the enormity of what we are now committed to. In part for that reason, but not only, not just for that reason, I think that the energy, and now I'm going to use the word transition, the energy transition will be more like a transition. It will be less like a, a revolution in that sense. In that sense, I think that it, it will go more slowly than um, is desirable. I'm looking at this from a climate 
perspective. Mm. And indeed, to some extent, I would say looking at it from a fossil fuel energy perspective, because I think that as I spend quite a bit of time on in disorder, there are really serious problems around oil in its own terms, leaving aside the carbon emission consequences of oil. So even if it weren't for climate change, I think we would still be trying to get away from, from oil. And I think we can see in a more specific sense the difficulties here if we look at the difference between, you know, really quite impressive progress in a number of countries, not least Denmark, yeah. uh, on electricity, on decarbonising the electricity sector, and then look at transportation in particular. So sometimes I think that some people get carried away with an optimistic story about how well renewables are doing, and they don't distinguish between electricity, where you know solar and wind are in some countries making a pretty impressive contribution, um, and what oil does. And at the moment, a lot of the time, solar and wind cannot be substitutes for oil because we, we've not electrified the things that oil does. Uh, now, obviously, there's some progress here. Think about like electric vehicles, but the number of electric vehicles on the road compared to the number of internal combustion engine vehicles on the road, obviously there is no comparison um, at the moment. And then that doesn't even get onto questions about flight, aeroplanes and ships and shipping being pretty central and being, being fundamental to um, international trade as we know it. Um, so I think that what we need to see, understand um, in terms of the political impact of, of, of all this at the international level is is that we are we have moved into and I'd say this past tense and we have moved into a multi energy source world uh, and that's where we're going to be for quite some time to come and that multi energy source world is going to have a multi energy source geopolitics mm. so we're going to have the geopolitics of fossil fuel energy and the fault lines around that and the conflicts that come from it continue at the same time as we're going to have a new geopolitics or we are seeing a new geopolitics around green energy and that is partly a question of like metal extraction sure. and supply chains around metal extraction but it is also i think a, a competition between um really between europe the united states and china and really a lot of it unfortunately us china about whose firms are going to dominate the technologies around energy world in particular, I would suggest um, electric vehicles, but not only. And then I think on the domestic politics side of this, so in democracies, there are, you know, like profound questions that we've seen in a different context play out since the 24th of February of last year around the war of who is going to consume energy and at what price. Yeah. Uh, that we're going to see a, we are seeing, I should say, a politics of distribution around energy consumption. Um, that energy consumption is going to be contested, I think, in in democratic politics in the in the in the decades to come, because it's not at all obvious. I think if we just take one example, the electric vehicles case, it's not at all obvious that actually mass car ownership of the kind that Western countries got used to in the 20th century can be replicated in the age of electric vehicles. And I think that there's a there's a risk that we go back to some version of the early 20th century before Henry Ford's um, Model T car came along where car ownership was basically for the rich. It was a luxury good and it was a pretty symbolically important like luxury good. It's not so clear yet, at least, I think, that 
um, electric vehicle ownership can be democratised in the sense in which um, the internal combustion engine was, or at least if it can, that that's sometime in the, the future. Uh, and so that we're going to have a, a quite difficult politics around the question of, well, who is benefiting from the energy transition? Does it work in, in ways that actually fuel lots of popular resentments? And I, I think that we're going to be living with these kind of political questions for, for, for yeah, over, the, over the next few decades. The interesting thing about what happened last year as a result of the war was that it really opened up question of the politics of energy consumption. Um, because if anybody had said, and you know, I read a couple of articles that suggested this, and, and the way I ended the book on disorder on this note, um, which I was writing in finishing in 2000, the first part of 2021, is to say, actually, the future might involve reduced energy consumption. That was a kind of pretty unpalatable, if not even quite taboo thing to say in the context of climate change, because there was still a kind of optimism, I think, then that actually the energy transition can happen quite rapidly, that it can be a source of growth, etc. There's no reason to think that there's going to be this period in which energy consumption per capita is going to fall. But what we saw as a result of the war and the need in Europe to reduce gas consumption in particular, as you were saying, is that it turned out that actually it was possible to for governments, politicians to say, actually, collectively, we need to reduce our gas consumption. Now, I think what was striking in the domestic politics of that was that politicians also wanted to make sure that they provided price protection to their citizens, whilst they were also asking them to reduce um, gas consumption. Hence, we saw the, you know, the big fiscal packages that a number mm. of um, European um, countries put together to basically protect households from too high um, energy um, prices. But I, I think these questions uh, um, of who gets to consume energy at what price and whether the state actually helps citizens pay for their energy consumption, that we're, 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 we're going to be in that world, I think, permanently now. I think you're right, and I think there are some dangers there. And if I can point to two examples, one is the the yellow jerseys in in France. You know, of course, an example of the government uh, putting a tax on fossil fuels, a sensible thing to do uh, if you if you only look at it from an energy transition point of view but something that led to more inequality in a society that was already struggling with poverty. Now, I don't think that the people demonstrating in the streets of Paris were against the green transformation, but they were, of course, concerned that they did not have enough money to pay for the fuel to get them to work every day and thereby to make the money that they needed for their families. So that is a very concrete example of how we risk Uh, this transformation leading to uh, inequality, that's even in a comparatively speaking rich country. Now, different but similar examples are easy to find if we look at the developing world. So countries that we now from the West and the richer countries expect to go through a green transformation, and let, let me be clear, that is definitely also the policy of the Danish government when we allocate money in development aid and try and help countries, we, we, we do it with the aim also to 
to push the green transformation. But we also risk at the same time that it can lead to something that we are also targeting, which is inequality. This is why, of course, we need to make sure that the development happening is a what we like to call a just transition. Now, that's very much easier said than done. Take a country like South Africa, for instance, very dependent on coal, big exporters of, of coal. Uh, we would like them to move away from coal, both in their own consumption, but also in, in exports. But if we ask them to do that, we also need to help them find a substitute. Um, how will they create the energy that they need for themselves? And probably even more relevant, how, how will we make sure that they will create employment and jobs for the thousands and thousands of people that are working in, in coal mines and in the coal industry today? Now, these two examples of the same problem that the green transformation might lead to inequality if we don't manage them correctly, I think needs to be at the core of the international discussion on these issues. And fortunately, one of the outcomes of COP27 in, in Egypt was that there will now be a bigger focus also in the COP process, so the UN process on fighting climate change on this topic exactly, just transformation. Yeah, I mean, a way, way I think it's even worse than that, because I think that um, the, the risk is that um, the way things look you know, in the in the global south and in a country like South Africa is that um, Western countries hold on to fossil fuel energy consumption because they already have it and they will give it up when they have replacement energy for it. Um, they won't give it up before then. And then they're asking countries that don't have reliable fossil fuel energy, not least because often it's too expensive for them. Look at what's happened to Pakistan, for instance, about gas in the course of the last year, or a country like South Africa where there are, you know, like regular electricity blackouts. And that we in Western countries are saying, um, we can have our insurance policy of fossil fuels, but you're not allowed that. And therefore you're stuck where you are now, which was with much lower level of per capita energy um, consumption than than we have. And you're stuck um, with having societies, countries where 100% of people do not have access to electricity. And I, I, I think for rich countries to ask poorer countries to accept that, even if they're providing you know, a reasonable amount of money to finance the energy transition, I think that that is a huge, huge ask. And I think that what's happened during the course of 2022 made that even harder because what we in Europe showed uh, in the emergency was that we were very willing to go back to coal. You know, think of the the coal-fired power stations um, that were that were kept open in a, in a number of um, European countries because no European government, quite understandably for domestic reasons, wanted to take the risk of blackouts. But actually, that's the reality of life in South Africa at the um, at the moment. So I think it's very difficult then when the when we in Europe have shown that in the emergency we will accept coal to then lecture countries much poorer than us about how they need to get away from coal as quickly as possible. Couldn't you also couldn't you also argue, Helen, that that is also actually one of the main arguments for for making this transformation as fast as possible, apart from of course the obvious one, which is to fight climate change, that you can make a country like Pakistan independent or more independent at least 
of uh, of fossil fuels from other countries because mm. a lot of the renewable energy production is a local is local. Now, of course, you're saying, and that is also true, that um, look at oil. I mean, we won't get a huge fleet of electric cars on the streets of Pakistan or or India or China tomorrow, probably, even even though that might actually go faster than we thought. But, but nonetheless, what we are looking at, I think and I hope, is a hydrogen-based economy. And huge investments are being made in this also, by the way, uh, in in developing countries. So if we managed doing this in the right way, that could actually localize the production and make countries independent of what's going on in the energy market globally, to a larger degree at least. Is that too optimistic? Or I think the questions about whether it's too optimistic is about speed. What I would say is, is that it's clear that if you just look historically, if you were to have much more domestically produced energy for countries, uh, and then perhaps like, say, you know, like in Europe, like with the electricity interconnectors, regional integration uh, in with countries with highly cooperative relations with each other. That is all a very, very good thing. Once you understand the importance of energy to the conflicts of the 20th century, the more you understand that, the more good thing you can see that domestically produced or regionally cooperatively produced energy is. So on that, I'm in entirely... Um, with you and the very nature of electricity if we're going in the direction of at least in part more electrification though i agree with you that hydrogen is going to be part of this story you can't have um, a global geopolitics of electricity in itself in the way which you can have a global geopolitics of of oil you simply can't transport electricity around the world and where you can transport oil around even hydrogen, even though that, you know, some have argued that that will then be the new oil, so to speak. Uh, hydrogen is also quite difficult to transport. But hydrogen, I think some see this, I actually also do that myself, as also a very, very important part of the equation, since this is also a possibility to store energy, right? So when you, well, so sometimes wind is blowing when you don't need the electricity, good. So you still make the electricity and you store it in the hydrogen. Now the hydrogen can then also at the same time, that's what makes it so neat, can also be used in the parts of your energy system where you cannot electrify it directly. So it, it does make sense, but we're not there yet, of course, because this, we, we don't have the scale and, and it's far too expensive. I think that the, the, the more pessimistic thing aspect that should be put in is the metals question, um, because this is the point... Um, in which the 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 arbitrary distribution of a resource this time under the Earth's surface comes back into play in the way in which it does with um, oil and um, gas. Now, I think you know, I'm not anything like an expert on this. Maybe just for the listeners, the rare minerals and, and, and metals are important because they're used in so much technology, creating renewables and electric cars and everything we have in our modern life, basically. And since it's a few countries on the planet that control the production, potentially we have uh, a source for conflicts that you can compare to, to the ones we've had with fossils. Yeah, and I think we can see that China has dominated both the extraction of rare earths um, and then the supply chains around metal extraction of the, the metals that are important for the energy transition in um, in other countries, both the United States and the European Union, trying in quite different ways, I think, to respond to that. 
I think this does pose some difficulties for Europe because I think it is true both that Europe isn't particularly geographically advantaged in the distribution of those resources and to the extent that these resources do exist in Europe, that there is considerable political resistance to the mining, the metal mining that this um, entails. Yeah, and this also shows us again how how the conflicts and the challenges of this planet are all interlinked because the metals that we need for renewable energy, the renewable energy that we need to save the climate, are also metals that when we mine them, we hurt biodiversity. And of course, the huge crisis of biodiversity might be as serious as the crisis we have on climate change. So so really, there's no easy solutions uh, so Helen, we started uh, we started with a quote of Charles Dickens. Now the only quote that I know by memory by Charles Dickens is of course from Tale of Two Cities. It's probably the most famous one. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Now we've spoken a lot about problems and the challenges and why this in many ways is not a pretty good time. But are you also bottom line optimistic? I, I, I'm not sure whether um, the new world as it comes be better or I'm not. I'm probably more pessimistic than than you um, on that. But what I do think is is that there is something in that sense extraordinary about this time in which we are um, living. Um, and in the face of what I do think are you know enormous difficulties, it does put the challenge to all of us in some sense to um, to try to live our lives and think about our lives in ways that are consummate to this moment. And that. I don't think there's a bad, that's a bad thing. I think that that's probably a good thing. I, I'm not sure I would quite go with best of times and worst of times. And I think as well, people think generally tend to think that Dickens wrote that about the revolution itself. And it isn't, it's kind of a bit, little bit more satirical than that about the times before the revolutions and the fact that everybody's always thinking that they, that's the best of times and the worst of times um, simultaneously. But I do think actually that this moment we're living in, you know, it is historically, in that sense, an extraordinary tasker ahead of us and it's up to us to try to at least try to to rise to that well helen i i often find that if people are more pessimistic than me it's usually because they know more and they're smarter than me and i i think that's that's unfortunately probably the case here uh, i would definitely recommend to everybody to to read your book it does go into depth with with all of the things that we've talked about today and and even more so thank you so much for for joining me for this conversation helen thank you very much for having me you've listened to planet a a podcast on climate change and what to do about it.